All right, so if you've got a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 4. I'm going to be all over uh, the, the scriptures this morning, got a bunch of passages. We are in a series entitled The Christmas Quest, and uh, this is a four-week series that concludes on Christmas Eve uh, night, and the point of this series is we are looking into Acts chapter 4, 32 through 37, and we are seeing almost this like counterculture that was formed. See, the church existed in the empire of Rome, and they formed this beautiful community in the midst of persecution, in the midst of oppression, and, uh, and they formed this beautiful community called the church. And we see in this first church, they're in this season of grace. And uh, there was selfishness was destroyed. Their lives are being changed. Uh, there's this unprecedented level of generosity that they're showering upon each other. They're motivated to sacrifice for each other. And in it, they form this beautiful, powerful, strong, life-changing, world-changing force, the church. Now, it's not the church itself that had the power. It is the power of the gospel and the power of the spirit through the church. But God uses his church then as like a, again, like a counterculture to, uh, to give a different picture than the, the, the culture of the world. And this idea of the Christmas quest is about how Christ came to earth first to save us from our sins, but then to, uh, as he saves us, then to form us into this community. And so we're looking into the community and we're seeing what's present there because this was the church that Jesus came to plant and we want to be the church that Jesus came to plant. And there is one trait that is here uh, in this story. Well, there's a bunch of them, but I'm going to pull out one this morning. Uh, one trait that, that almost seems to stand out amongst the rest of them of this early church, and that was the way they practiced generosity one toward another. And so here's my hope this morning. I want to talk about true biblical generosity, because uh, the idea of biblical generosity or Christian generosity has been so distorted, and it's been distorted in many different ways. It's been distorted through uh, a poverty gospel. It's been distorted through a prosperity gospel. Uh, it's been distorted through churches not operating under God's um, proper guidance, uh, it's been distorted through just bad doctrine. It's been distorted over and over and over again. And instead of it being what it is supposed to be, something that is beautiful, something that uh, the, the world looks in on and goes, I don't understand those Christians. I don't understand those Christians and how they can be so generous toward each other. Instead of being that, it is uh, turned into something that uh, a lot of people don't like to talk about. Or furthermore, it is uh, for some turned into something that is almost like shackles. And it's almost felt, made you feel like, like enslaved to certain ideas when it comes to Christianity and faith and money and generosity and all of those types of things. And so here's what I want to do. I, I want to show you in the scriptures this morning how you can be free from that. How you can be free from anything that would um, uh, that would smell like uh, uh, like 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 enslavement or shackles or obligation or guilt when it comes to biblical or Christian uh, Christian generosity, and because what we see here in Acts chapter four, verse thirty-two through thirty-seven, was true biblical generosity, and it was powerful. And not only was it powerful for those who were experiencing it, but it was powerful for those who were looking in at it and saying, uh, what is this Christian community? What are they up to? How do they operate so differently 
than the rest of the world. And so that's what we're going to look through this morning. We're going to uh, start in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 37. And then I just want to point out three things this morning, three truths about true biblical generosity. And then I want to tell you how we can practice true biblical generosity. Uh, and then at the end, I'll tell you why. And I know Simon Sinek says, start with why. We're going to end with why today. And so I'll get there at the end. Acts 4, 32 through 37. Here's our text. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Isn't that beautiful? Now, what brought them together was their belief. Their belief in what? Their belief in the gospel, uh, that Christ had died and that Christ rose again, and they were unified around that belief. They weren't unified uh, around like a set of practices. Uh, they weren't unified around like some kind of forced or manipulated um, coercion. They were unified around their common love for Christ. And their common love for Jesus or the grace that they had received from Christ formed them into this community. And if you are new around here, I want you to know uh, that, that we do everything we do around here uh, as, as individuals and as a body, not because we have to, not because we're obligated, but because Jesus has changed us. Because we've received grace. And uh, it wasn't about what we did, it was about what Christ has done for us. And so this community was formed around the idea of what Christ had done for them. And one of the ways it looked, there's all these examples of generosity. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. Jumping down to verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. What a beautiful picture. Not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, there have been times in the history of the Christian faith when people have read into this and they uh, have misunderstood what this was saying. And there are other stories and uh, other examples or other verses in the scripture that Christians have also looked in uh, as it relates to generosity and misunderstood it. But I think this text right here, properly understood, will clear up some truths for us about biblical generosity. So I'm going to give you three this morning. Uh, let me give you the first one. Biblical generosity is an act of worship, not of obligation. Biblical generosity is an act of worship, not of obligation. And I would say this, even in our own church right here amongst us, uh, or many of us throughout the years, perhaps have lived under this, the idea that biblical generosity is, is, is an obligation. Well, I have to do something. Let me tell you a quick story. So when I was, uh, I think I was a senior in high school, and um, all of the seniors, we were all gathered around, and it was right at the beginning of the year, and the principal had brought us in. I went to a Christian high school, and so what he uh, would do at the beginning of the year is just try to lay out like a good spiritual foundation for the year, and uh, we'd pray together, and he would just encourage us with some scripture, like, hey, this is how we're going to treat each other this year. And, and really, it was a, it was a well-intended effort uh, to just spiritually set the tone for the school year. And we're all sitting in there, and the principal's like laying out his heart. He's reading scripture. It's like, you know, looking back now, it's beautiful, right? And we get to the end, and a couple of the students stand up. And he goes, do you, do you have any questions? And these students stand up, and, uh, and they walk in. We had a class about like 60 to 70. And he walks up. Uh, some of the students walk up, and they said, okay. But first, before we go anything else, are we going to be able to have dances this year? We didn't have dances at our Christian, right? Because dancing goes to hell, right? Okay, that was a joke. 
Okay, sorry. Okay, all right, all right. But uh, we so we didn't have dances uh, at, at our Christian school. And I'll tell you what, when these kids were asking, like, are we going to have dances? They weren't asking, like, you know, can we do the, you know, the, the Macarena or the YMCA? Right? Like, can we get boost with the fur up in here? Okay? Like, they were asking, like, can we dance, dance, you know? Right? And, and, and the principal is like, you know, he's like, oh, he's trying to have this conversation with them, and he wants to listen to them, and like, we just had this spiritual moment, and, uh, and so, like, obviously the whole tone in the room had changed, and I felt the Holy Spirit, like, even then as a senior in high school said, like, go say something. So I get up there, and I'm like, guys, like, after everything we just had, if our number one question is, can we dance up on each other? Our hearts are probably in the wrong spot going into this year. Friends, when you think of biblical generosity, if you start with, do I have to do this? Your heart is probably in the wrong spot. And for so long in Christian culture, uh, there have been Christians who have thought about um, uh, generosity with this, I have to do this. People will ask me, Stephen, do Christians in the New Testament, uh, New Testament Christians, do they have to tithe? If your question is, do I have to tithe, your heart is already in the wrong spot. Biblical generosity is not an act of obligation. It is an act of worship. Let me show this to you scripturally. Back in uh, Genesis chapter 14, there's this beautiful story. Um, well, I don't know if I'd say the word beautiful, okay? There's this great story about um, someone slaughtering a whole bunch of people. So maybe beautiful isn't the right word, actually. Okay, let's just pretend that didn't happen. So we're in Genesis chapter 14. And uh, let me read the story to you. After his return from the defeat of Chelodelamor, Pro tip, if you're reading the Bible and you don't know how to pronounce a name, just say anything. Nobody else knows either, okay? <laughs> After his return from the defeat of Cherodolamor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So Abraham has just won this great victory. And out comes this character named Melchizedek. And I'm going to read a little bit more about him in a second. And Abraham and Melchizedek, uh, then here, Melchizedek is going to bless Abraham. Now let's just stop for a second here. And Melchizedek is going to bless Abraham. Abraham, the, like the father of the Jewish people, okay? Like, like much of the rest of the story is going to be out. Abraham is going to bless the whole world, okay? And so Melchizedek is going to show up on the scene, and he's going to, to bless Abraham. And then after uh, Abraham gets uh, done being blessed by Melchizedek, look at the next line. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, this idea here of giving a tenth is the beginning of a biblical um, doctrine uh, called the tithe. And uh, throughout the rest of the patriarchy then, we're going to see Abraham's descendants. They're going to practice the tithe. And then eventually, you're going to get uh, hundreds of years later, all right, when the Israelite people uh, leave Egypt and they enter into the promised land, right? The, the Mosaic law is going to be written and, and, and the tithe is going to be written into the law. And 
uh, and then that's going to get passed down and passed down and passed down. And it is that reason, because the tithe is written into the Mosaic law, that today people will go, wait, do Christians have to tithe? Because, you know, the tithe, it came out of the Mosaic law. But the truth is what? The tithe didn't come out of the Mosaic law. Where did it come out of? Right here. See, the first instance of this has, uh, it precedes the law. It has nothing to do with God saying, you have to do this. It has everything to do with Abram being blessed and then as an act of honor and as an act of gratitude, because he has been blessed, he then pours out a tenth of all that he has. True Biblical generosity, friends, is an act of worship, not of obligation. It's when your heart is so overcome by the blessing that you have received that you, like, look, like, look at Abraham. He's like, it's like, he's like, he's so overcome by it. He just looks around and he goes, here, take this. Is that enough? Is that enough? Take it. It's yours. Now, later in the book of Hebrews, we're going to revisit this character, Melchizedek, okay? And if you want to go deep in the biblical YouTube rabbit hole, look up Melchizedek, okay? It will mess with you. Hebrews 5, 9 and 10. And being made perfect, he, now the new he is Jesus, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of of Melchizedek. Jumping over to chapter 7 now. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything, or a tithe. He is first, by translation of his name, this is referring to Melchizedek, get these words. He is first, what? King of righteousness and king of of peace. Who does that sound like? He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? Let me translate that. How incredible would somebody have to be for Abraham to go, oh, take 10% of everything I have. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law. Here's where the law is being brought in to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though they also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior, Abraham, is blessed by the superior, Melchizedek. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. This is actually brilliant, okay, uh, if you dive into it. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Okay, what's it saying? 
What it is saying here is this, that when Abraham gave up his tithe, it had nothing to do, it was not grounded in any way in an obligatory response. Can I free you from something today? I do not want anyone in this church to give their tithe or to give their anything to this church out of some kind of weird, uh, deceptive um, obligation. In fact, I'll just say this, just stop. Like, really, why? Because I want your heart to be set free. Generosity, true biblical generosity, the kind of generosity that upended the, uh, the, the, the empire of Rome, the kind of generosity that the early church was um, receiving and, uh, and was being formed in there that was such a beautiful thing to behold came out of uh, first honor of God uh, and worship of him. It's like when you've received something so beautiful, when you've been blessed so deeply, how can you not just pour out? Okay, I've shared this story with you before. It's kind of an embarrassing one to admit. Okay, so when I was a junior in high school, I was in chemistry class, and I took, uh, we had chemistry lab, okay? And I fortunately, um, my, my, one of my best friends there uh, at the time in high school um, is a genius, Okay, like to this day, he's like one of the best known cancer doctors. Okay, and uh, and so we're in class in uh, in chemistry, and we were lab partners, and we had a beautiful partnership. Okay, he did all the work, and I watched. <laughs> and guess what grades we got? <laughs> all A's, hundred percent. And uh, every once in a while, he'd say, "Stephen, can you go get me a pencil?" And I would say, "I'm a little busy right now, but." You know, okay, I'll go grab me a pencil, right? And he would just sit there and he would do everything. And, uh, and now at the end of it, I will be honest, I, I know very little about chemistry, but I got a very good grade because he was brilliant and did all the work that I could have never done. Now imagine, had we gotten done with a particular lab and the teacher had said, hey, whoever got the, the best lab report uh, is gonna get $100. And imagine that we get to the end of it and, uh, and, and, and whoever had the best lab report gets $100 and the teacher looks and goes, well, uh, Stephen and, and his friend, you guys had the best lab report, so here's $100. And imagine in that moment if I would have grabbed the $100 and I would have said, thank you so much, teacher, and stuck that in my pocket. And then continue to um, walk down the hallway and my lab partner walking behind me being like, um, hey, dude, what about me? And I look at him and say, um, you know what? I think you've, your, your gift was in doing the lab, okay? I'll take the prize. No, no, no. I mean, you look at that. How, how, how bad would that be of me? How wrong would, like in that moment, right? Would that have been so wrong? And, and even to look back and to say, okay, you know what? Here's the deal, lab partner. Um, I'm gonna give you a dollar out of it. I'm gonna give you $2 out of it. You still look and you say, well, it's still a little weird, okay, but at least there's a little bit of something going on. No, the only appropriate response in that moment would be of me to look at it and go, man, I can't hold on to this. I can't hold on to this thing. I've been Like, take it, take it. That'd be the only appropriate response in this story. Let me translate, friends. When you have received the blessing of God's salvation, 
when you have received the gift of his grace, when you have understood the beauty of the gospel, when you have seen how much Jesus has laid down for you, when you have seen that Jesus has done a work for you that you could have never done for yourself, that you got an A that you could have never received on your own, how can you do anything but to look back at him and say, Father, whatever I have, I want to just pour it back onto you as an act of worship. And generosity in any level for the Christian comes not out of you have to. It comes out of how can I not when you have poured so much into me? That's the first one. So be free this morning if you are in any way acting out of obligation. Secondly, second thing we see in here is this, uh, and we'll see it right in verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, this is a beautiful picture of community. It's incredible, actually. I mean, in essence, what's going on here is there's this massive group of people, 25,000 or so. We talked about that last week. And out of the 25,000, many of them had traveled in from out of town. And so now they were there, and, uh, and they're basically homeless in some sense because they had moved in uh, from out of town. They hadn't planned on staying, but they had gotten so caught up in the gospel, right, that now they wanted to stay here in the body of the church. They're going to get dispersed later when persecution starts. But for now, they're living in this season of grace. And from time to time, Right, They would look in at the church, at the body, uh, the people, and go, man, th those guys don't have enough. And somebody with means would pop up and go, you know what? I've got this thing that I don't need. And so then they would just sell it, right? And they would take the money, and they would give it to the church, and they would say, okay, take care of everybody's needs. And then like the next week, the same thing would happen, and another guy would pop up and go, hey, you know what? I have something that I could sell. And so he goes off, and he sells his house, or he sells his land, and he brings it back. He says, okay, hey, take care of each other's needs. And it's this beautiful picture of community, and it's teaching us our second principle, and it's this, that true biblical generosity is an act of love, not guilt. It's an act of love, not guilt. That here in Acts, they're being generous one toward another, not because they feel guilty, not because, oh, I have and they don't. And by the way, the world right now loves to, both in the church sometimes and outside of the church, even in the world right now, like uh, guilt-driven generosity is popular. Like we, we have guilt-driven generosity. Right? Every time you go to the grocery store, right? You stand in line. You get to the end and they're like, would you write, like to round up 87 cents? You're like, oh, no. And everyone's watching you, right? And you're like looking at this human being who's staring at you and they're like, do you have 87 cents you can spare, right? And you're like, to who? That's what I always ask. I'm like, to who? Who am I giving this to, right? And then they say some nonprofit that I don't know ex who they are and I don't know if they're gonna use this money wisely. So I always look back at them and say, no, thank you, right? And, uh, but then you walk out and you're like, am I a bad Christian, right? Or you get on Facebook and you see a GoFundMe because somebody needs to go on a mission trip to California, right? You're like, am I supposed to give to this? No. Well, maybe. Christians don't give out of guilt, friend. Christians give out of love. 
And there's all of this guilt-laden, guilt-driven type of generosity. And uh, I said, no, you have to, or, or you have means, and so you have to, or, uh, or, or, or look at this, so you have to, and this, and you, have, and you, just, and you get clothed in this guilt. And, and in the first church, true biblical generosity, and this is going to be echoed all throughout the book of Acts, right, was not, was not out of guilt. It was just simply out of love. Let me show you a text. By the way, um, in, the, in the first point I made, uh, I forgot to say this, um, the question uh, should not be, um, um, do I have to give? The, the, the question the Christian asked is this, how much, how much do I want to worship? How much do I want to bless uh, back the one who has blessed me so much, okay? That's the question, the first one. Uh, I'll show you here the question for the second, the second point here. Let me read this text to you first, though. We're in 1 John uh, chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 14. We know... We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Well, let me translate that verse real quick. What's he saying? He's saying one of the ways you know that the gospel has changed you is because you love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Friend, one of the ways uh, that you can evaluate, like, is the gospel growing in me? Are you growing in your love for one another in here? Are you growing in love for, uh, for, for, for people in your church family? Because that's one of the ways that you know that the gospel has done something inside of you. Next verse, he says this. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You ever heard people that say like, oh, I love Jesus, but I hate church and I hate Christians. They don't love Jesus. They don't. Because if you love Jesus, you will love his church and you will love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for each other. Now, look how quickly John transitions this. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What is John saying? He's saying, don't puff yourself up, call yourself a follower of Christ, pat yourself on the back for your righteousness and holiness if there's a brother or sister of yours that is in need and you have and you don't respond. He's saying the proof is in your lack of love. But true biblical generosity does what? True biblical generosity comes out of how when the gospel comes in and changes us and then we're bound together by the Holy Spirit into a family out of love, I can't but help to give to my brothers and sisters. Last week, we, uh, I created this metaphor about how the, the oneness that the first church experienced, uh, maybe the best metaphor that we see uh, in, in modern life is the picture of marriage, right? Like Christian marriage, we talk about the two becoming one. And so in Christian marriage, like you take all that you are and you enter into oneness, 
right? And so you share everything, uh, and, uh, and by doing it, you're saying, like, I was an individual, right? I, I was holding on, but now I'm surrendering, and I'm coming, and I'm, and I'm making myself one, right? And that's the, 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 the idea of biblical marriage is the best picture of what this early church was experiencing, that kind of oneness, one toward another. And, uh, and we created this metaphor. Like, it would be weird if a husband said, I love my wife, but the husband lived like a, pa- or a prince and the wife lived like a pauper. You would go, no, you don't. No, you don't. What is this text saying? It's saying, it's saying uh, that, that in the context of the church, that, that one of the ways we show love is that uh, we, we, are so, we feel so connected. You're, you're so one toward another uh, that when one has and another doesn't, somebody pops up and goes, oh, I've got more than I need. Here, take. What a beautiful picture. And friends, the world, the world has no answer for this. The world's answer for this, by the way, is to create systems, is to create law, is to create coercion and force, right? We live in a culture uh, that wants to um, write law in to say, okay, if somebody has, let's go take from them and give it to somebody else. Christian culture here is so different. In Christian culture, it says, oh, the gospel has changed me. I don't need somebody to come in and take from me to give to someone else. I'm just going to give to someone else because I've been so changed by him. What a beautiful picture. And this is so different than what the world can produce. And we have to see here that this, this understanding of true biblical generosity is in part what allowed the church to grow so rampantly and for the world to look in and say, this is so unique, it is so different. Now, there's uh, a word in here that we see both in um, this text that I just read in 1 John. We also see it in Acts. And so I do want to help us understand a little bit more true biblical generosity because we see this word need emerge right? And um, isn't it funny, like, what we now classify as needs in our culture, like, as opposed to, um, like, beyond needs, right? And so we do want to see here that, that, that the response was respond to the person's need. And, uh, and, and kind of um, d- distinguishing between need and, uh, and, and, and to some level excess. And later what's going to happen is the Apostle Paul, he's actually going to write uh, in his letters, and, and for time I can't look at all of these today, but he's going to corre- correct some abuses of the system. And so when we talk about true biblical generosity, not being moved out of obligation or guilt, part of that is understanding some of those parameters that Paul would later put in place in the church, right? And so uh, let me give you a couple of those parameters because I think they'll actually help free some of us up a little bit. One of the take care of one another uh, in the context of the church first. And so for me, right, like my first primary responsibility is what? Take care of my family, right, my children, my wife. Okay, but after that then, my primary responsibility is, is, is where? Here, right here in our body. And sometimes what we'll hear, or as Christians, we can begin to feel guilty because we'll look out and we'll see, oh, there's so much need out there. There's so much need out there. There's so much need out there, right? But true biblical generosity understands um, proper prioritization. And step one is my immediate family, right? And the like, people that I would call family. And then step two is my brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And so I'll tell you what, I'm totally free that like when I get sent the random like, you know, hey, can you give to this? Or hey, can you give to that thing over there or that thing over there? Like totally free to be like, no, why? Because my primary, my first responsibility, right, to my family, but then it's to my church family. And so I'm gonna focus the finite resources that God has given me to the people that God has surrounded me with right here, you. And so out of love, right, for, for each and every one of you, because you're my brothers and sisters in Christ, we're in the same church, right? Like when Lindsay and I, when we set up our budget to, to do, and we do give 10% of everything we make, both inside and outside of the church, into here, first as an act of worship, but then second as an act of love, it becomes easy to say no to all of those things out there. Why? Because my primary responsibility is here first to you to you. That's one clarification that Paul makes. A second clarification that he makes is this, and this one really flies against some of our modern understanding, and that it's this, that those who don't work aren't eligible uh, uh, in many ways of the, uh, of the generosity of the church. And how many times have we been obligated or guilted uh, into looking at somebody, right, who's saying they don't want to do their part. Oh, but if I really love my brother, then I would give, and so I feel obligated, and so now I have to. You're free. You're free. Why? Because Paul steps in. He goes, no, 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 right? Like, it is on that person first to do what they're able to do. And then, when there's shortcoming, then you step in and you provide generosity around it. See, understanding the actual true biblical um, uh, understanding of this, it, it, it's very freeing, right? Let me give you one more. And this one, this one might upset some people, right? But Paul lays this out, and that is this, that those who would, be, uh, would claim that they're a part of the body of Christ and would persistently um, um, engage in sin become ineligible in many ways of the generosity. Some of us say, oh, that's so not loving, well, no, according to the scriptures, it's loving to call those people out of their sin and to call them into righteousness and holiness. See, true biblical generosity is this beautiful thing that is supposed to form the community together where a group of people who mutually honor Christ because he has blessed them say, uh, man, I give out of what God has done for me. And then I give because I love you. And so now uh, there is no obligation and there is no guilt. But as God has poured out to me, I pour out to the body, right? And it forms something beautiful. And so when a need pops up, we can meet it. And for um, six years around here as a church, we always have. When a legitimate need pops up, biblically, right, we meet the need. Why? Because we love each other and because we're worshiping Christ together. Third one is this. And we see right at the end, there's this guy named Barnabas, and he has a piece of land, and he just sells the land, and he comes in, he just lays it at the apostles' feet. In essence, he's saying what? He's saying, hey, you guys do with this what you think is best. He, he's laying it at the church, right? Because back then, there was all this, like, trust in the church. And I know that trust in institutions and uh, trust even in the church as a whole um, has deteriorated over the last 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. I mean, even historically, we can look back hundreds of years ago and see where the church, in many ways, or at certain times in history, um, operated in an ungodly way as it related to money and where greed was um, the driving factor or power was the driving 
driving factor. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's on us to go back to the beginning and see that there was this beauty where even people, when they gave, they just laid it out at the, uh, at the, at the church and said, do with this what you think is best, right? Know the people, love the people, operate in a biblical way, uh, and then be generous toward each other. And so uh, the, the, my third point is this, that true biblical generosity is an act of partnership, not abdication. And here's what I mean by that. Some people, what they want to do is they want to go, okay, you know what? I give a little bit of money, and so don't ask anything else of me. I give a little bit, right? And I'll, I'll write a check once a year or something like that, but that's it. That was never the nature of true biblical generosity. True biblical generosity uh, it was that people gave because they, they looked in and they said, no, no, I'm partnering with you in this mission. Uh, we're partnering together for the goodness of, uh, of the body of Christ, right? So our, our, our collective good uh, and, and what happens here, but also for the collective good of reaching people who don't know Christ. Now, let's just compare these two different options or, or plans that I've laid out here. On one, you have people who become biblically generous or who operate generously, and it's rooted in an obligation, I have to do this. It's rooted in a guilt, I should probably do this. It's rooted in an abdication of, okay, if I do this, I won't have to do anything else. Or the other side, I give first. Why? Because I have been so deeply blessed. Because Christ has changed me and he's, uh, he's poured his grace out into my heart. And so out of honor and gratitude, I give some back. I give because I am so uh, in love, right? If I can use that term. I love so much the people that God has put into this church family. And I wanna make sure that every need that ever comes up is met. I give because I know that I am partnered together with these people for the sake and the cause of Christ. Those are two very different things. One of them can lead to guilt and shame and almost shackles. One of them is freeing and liberating and formed the community that ended up um, bringing the gospel out to the world. Let me end this morning with this last example of this. In 1 Corinthians, actually 2 Corinthians, sorry, chapter 8. If you have a Bible, you can follow me over there. This is this beautiful picture of generosity. And this would happen um, decades after the first church, right, that we saw here in Acts. But this spirit of generosity is still alive in the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. Their extreme poverty. Think about that. I don't know how extremely poor you have to be for in antiquity to be labeled extremely impoverished. For their extreme poverty have what? Have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Get this. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. Look at these words. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. In other words, they were begging Paul, Paul, will you please take our money? That's yet to happen to me in ministry. And this 
not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, Here's the partnership side. Saying it's not just about what you give. He says, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of generosity or this act of grace also. And then he goes on to say this. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Redemption Church, I hope that we are a ridiculously generous people. And as a church, we have tried to practice generosity. Not tried. We have practiced generosity as a, as a church body for, for years now. Uh, and, and like I said earlier, every, and many of you in here, you could probably raise your hand. I'm certainly not asking you to do that, so don't. Um, but there have been times in your life when you have come up to a need and you have approached us and we have said yes every single time. Why? Because this biblical generosity is this picture that the world can't fully understand. Why? Because they haven't been changed by the same thing that we have, the gospel. And when the gospel comes in and it changes us in such a way that it draws our hearts to each other. Angie, you need some water? There you go, girl. All right. I got plenty more up here if anyone needs any. When the gospel changes us in that way, all of a sudden, we can do things and act in such a way that the world will never fully comprehend. This last week, there was a, there's a tragedy that happened in uh, the Anthony Wayne area, and I won't go too much into that. Um, and I know many of you are praying for that, and you're, you're, you're kind of a part of that solution. And, uh, and, and, and somebody reached out to me uh, in our church and said, hey, have you heard this story? Uh, there's this GoFundMe, and, uh, and, and they're trying to raise some money for this, this kind of tragic event that had happened. And, uh, and as a church, we just responded immediately and gave to it. And I'll be honest, um, for all intents and purposes, like for us as a church, it was a relatively insignificant amount of money. But I got this message back from the person who was organizing the event that, that in short said, like, we are blown away by your church's generosity and the love that you're showing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And friends, this is just one example that when Christians operate out of this type of love and this type of generosity, how we can blow the world's expectations out of the water because we play by different rules. Their rules are we, uh, their rules are that the goal is to um, acquire and acquire and acquire, right? And then to release only when I absolutely have to or somebody manipulates me into doing it out of obligation or guilt or to make somebody feel better and to stop bugging me. And our rules are that if we do acquire and acquire and acquire because we're using our gifts and our skills that we now out of deep love for people look for every opportunity to take what God has given us and to pour it out and bless it into somebody else. These are totally two different games. And when we play it, the way uh, that the first church did, when we play it in the way of how the gospel has worked through us, it gives us this incredible opportunity to show the world how being changed by Jesus changes in the practical changes right here in how we live. And so I would encourage you, give and give generously. 
But if the only way you can give is out of obligation or guilt, then please don't. Just keep coming and let Jesus change you. Because there will come a moment when the gospel will hit you so hard that you will have no other option than to go, wow, I've got to give something. You've been this good to me, I have to pour out. There will come a moment when you will meet somebody in this body and you will go, wow, I just am starting to love these people so much. I have to. Not I have to. I have to. Right? There will come a moment. There will come a moment when, when, when you will get so excited about the gospel of Christ and the mission of the gospel more than whatever shadow mission you're on right now that you'll say, this is better than anything I could have gone and spent this extra money on. And it is the grace of Christ, not the manipulation of a speaker or the obligation of the Mosaic law that will get you to that point. You know how I know that? Because Paul, at the end of 1 Corinthians, or sorry, 2 Corinthians, that text that I just read, he goes, hold on, guys, remember? He says, for you know, this is how Paul ends. He ends with why here. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. What's he saying? He's saying Jesus gave it all up for you. And he says, and as Christ gave it all up for you, why does the Christian give? Not obligation, not guilt, not to abdicate response. No, the Christian gives because Christ gave to him first. And then it just starts coming out. So hey, if you're like, man, I've been given, and it's just totally out of guilt, you have two options. Repent <laughs> or stop. Seriously, we're fine. We'll be okay. I would much rather your heart be changed. Much rather. And hey, if you have a need and you're a part of our church, we're here for you. You are not alone. Your family, your church family, works hard every week at whatever anyone around here does. And we got all sorts of different professions and then faithfully and consistently gives. Why? Because they love you. And in your moment of need, your church will be there for you. So let us help you, okay? Let us help you if that's where you're at. And I can tell you this. If you're more excited about some shadow mission right now than you are about the gospel, keep letting God change you because you're going to get to a point where you're going to realize there is nothing better. There is nothing better than what God wants to do to his church. And we can partner together in some cool ways. Let's pray. Father, I pray um, that this message would have its intended effect today, that it would set us free in this area. Father, that we would be able to give and to give generously. Yes, first and foremost to the body of Christ, but then even... Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.